Hello, I'm Tim McLaughlin, and this is a Maywa podcast. The lecture, The Mummies of Arumchi, Textiles in Time, was recorded live on October 12, 2007, as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium held in Vancouver, Canada. The lecture is introduced by myself and features Elizabeth Barber. This podcast consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in December of 2007. Elizabeth Barber is a professor of linguistics and archaeology at Occidental College in Los Angeles. She's the author of three books, Prehistoric Textiles, The Development of Cloth in the Neolithic and Bronze Ages, with special reference to the Aegean, Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, and The Mummies of Aramshi, which will be the feature of this evening's talk. Together with Paul Barber, she has also produced a fourth title, When They Severed Earth from Sky, How the Human Mind Shapes Myth. One is called hard to task to introduce Dr. Elizabeth Whalen Barber with anything like the elegant style and wit that she herself displays in her own writings. My favorite line comes only a short way into The Mummies of Rumchi and goes like this. Outside of Egypt, you find a presentable piece of cloth in a prehistoric dig about as often as you find a ruby in your oatmeal. And yet a ruby was found, or rather several rubies, in the form of a number of fully clothed mummies that were unearthed in western China. Someone with a very specific knowledge of ancient textiles and a knowledge of the evolution of loom technology might be able to examine the cloth and make a rather startling observation that there were peoples of Indo-European origin in China 3,000 years ago. If I might extend a weaving analogy, analogy to introduce tonight's lecture, Weaving takes its form and essence at the juncture of thread. Archaeology has its deepest meaning at the juncture of cultures. If we wish to learn from the artifacts removed from the earth, have them yield their stories, and be more than simply interesting elements which lie, perhaps beautifully or mysteriously, on a museum display table, but entirely mute and silent, then interpretive work is necessary to place the various threads in their proper order. Elizabeth has done this weaving for us, and so it is with great pleasure that I introduce Dr. Elizabeth Barber. We tend to think of mummies in the Egyptian uh, mold, which is to say sort of wizened black walnuts, um, which have been uh, anointed so much with unguents uh, that they don't really look much like people anymore. These mummies that I'm going to be talking about tonight are completely different, as you can see. Uh, this is one of the most famous ones. They, although they look a little dried out, they look basically as if they're asleep. They are so well preserved. And you can see how wonderfully preserved the uh, the textiles are. Not only are the colors beautiful and so forth, but they are as flexible as 19th century AD fabric. That is how well preserved they are. And we'll talk about how that came to be as we go on. But first of all, I think I better tell you a little bit about the country, the area where they were found. It is right smack in the middle of Asia. And there is the Taklamakan Desert, which is one of the driest and awfulest deserts in the whole world. And Urumqi is just on the other side of the mountains. The uh, mummies that we're going to be looking at were mostly found at the eastern end of the Taklamakan Desert. 
the Himalayas form a rain shadow such that as the monsoons come up across India, when they hit the Himalayas, they have to go up because the Himalayas are high, and that forces them to drop their load of moisture. So by the time you get to the Tibetan Plateau, um, you get the last of the moisture wrung out of them in the form of snow. And by the time you get to this area here, there's absolutely no more moisture to be had. And the same thing with anything coming southwards. You notice it's completely ringed by mountains on about 80% of it. And on this side, this is all desert also, so there's nothing coming this way. Okay, so this is the most famous of the mummies that was found at this, um, at this graveyard. Uh, she really has a very beautiful face, and she has come to be known as the beauty of Lulan. Lulan is the name of that eastern area of salt land. And she's got her wheat basket here, and she's got a winnowing tray. And on the female burials, that is what you find laid over the face and the top half of the body, apparent to sort of protect the face and, and shoulders area. And then she's got her blanket wrap. Uh, now, hers is a little fancier than the man's was because um, hers has an extra weft in it which has been looped. Uh, so you've got weft looping with the loops on the side towards her, which would give her nice insulation uh, on cold nights. Um, remember that. We were roasting in 110 degree in the shade weather, and here she is with her fur skirt and her fur-lined moccasins and her blanket wrap with the extra insulation. I'm thinking, why do these guys all look so cold when I'm so hot? Um, oh, and she's got another thing here, which is the remains of a comb. They're about, these guys here are about this tall, and if you tried to comb your hair with that much leverage, you would say, ouch. You don't need, you don't want that kind of leverage for combing your hair, and they can comb your hair with those, and they probably did use them for combing hair, but they're going to be far more useful, and that function behind that form is almost certainly for such things as combing the wool out of the, off the backs of the sheep that didn't molt yet. And they didn't have scissors yet either. So you combed it off the sheep. We will come back to that. Also, they can be used as a weaving comb to pack down the weft. And we have found almost identical combs in Mesopotamia from about 7,000 BC, this is 2000 BC, with clear wear marks along a line right about here, which is just about how deep you'd want to put the tines of your comb in as you're packing your weft down. And it's quite clear from the context and the form of those that those were also being used as weaving combs. Weaving seems to have begun, well, we're not quite sure. Our earliest provable evidence for weaving is about 7,000 BC in northern Mesopotamia. But it is already so well done that you have to believe there's a considerable history behind that. They'd already been doing it for quite a while, and they're already really good at it. Uh, but it seems to have moved across uh, Eurasia to China. We get our first evidence of weaving about 5,000 BC and also in Tibet. Uh, so people have been weaving for a long time, but by the time we get these guys at 2,000 BC. Okay, so we've seen that 
the two things that were, the two main things that were in these graves is that the people were dressed in wool, a wool come and a sheep's wool. And they are cultivating domestic wheat. Now, both of those cultigens began in Mesopotamia. Wheat was first domesticated right about here around 8,000 BC. I can say that with some exactness, thanks to an article in Nature where they have trace, traced the DNA uh, of these plants and figured out uh, ex more exactly where and when this happened. Okay, sheep, the wild ancestor of the modern domestic sheep runs wild in this area here. And it seems to have been domesticated also between around 8 and 7,000 BC. And then you start finding sheep bones. And domestic sheep spread around 6,000 BC uh, first. And then, as we will see, they developed a better breed of sheep. And they, they spread again uh, or a, a second time with a better breed around 3,500 BC. Okay, that's a sheep, right? Okay, then what's this? This is the wild ancestor of the modern domestic sheep. That is a wild Persian red sheep. Um, that particular one isn't quite so wild as some. It was in the LA County Zoo. When I heard <laughs> that they had them, I rushed over there to see if I could get a sample. I went to the zookeeper. Well, first I took this nice portrait, and then I rushed over to the zookeepers to ask if I could get a sample of what was on their backs because there was so much arguing in the literature as to whether there was usable wool on the backs of these creatures. And I explained my project, and they said, well, it's a very nice scientific project. We'd be happy to help you. But we don't like to disturb the sheep any more often than we absolutely have to. But once a year, we have to give them a tetanus shot. Could you come back then? Uh, I said, uh, OK. So I left them my name and phone number and went off thinking, well, on average, that's going to be six months before I get my sample. And it might be unlucky. Well, the next morning at 8 a.m., I get a call from the zookeeper and said, uh, we just realized we have to give the tetanus shots to our sheep this morning before the zoo opens. Think you could get right over here? So I grabbed the kitchen shears and ran out the door, went over to the zoo, uh, went in the back entrance where they told me to, bumped through the zoo in the back of their Jeep, and noticed the guy behind me had a set of um, a, a pair of uh, electric clippers, and I thought, okay, that's better than my kitchen shears. Um, so we got here. Now, this thing here that looks like a nice mountain is actually cement, and it, in, it encloses a nice modern uh, inside area with steel cages and stuff for the sheep, and they shoo them all in there every night because we've got lots of coyotes in Griffith Park. Um, the laugh is that later the sheep escaped, and everybody thought they must have been killed by the coyotes. Seven years later, they turned up um, in larger numbers than they had been before. <laughs> and they were perfectly fine. Um, anyway, so we went inside this little mountain, and they caught the ram and gave him his tetanus shot. And then the guy said, OK, let's get the sample for the lady. And so the guy with the, sh with the electric shears the, the one guy is kind of holding the ram by a couple of hanks of fur, and the, the other guy comes up behind the ram and turns the electric shears on. And the ram goes straight up in the air, yanks loose, and goes running around the cage like this. 
And there's a zookeeper standing there with this enormous hank of wool in his hand. And he looks at that, and he looks at the sheep, and he looks at me, and he says, will this do? <laughs> Such is science. And I said, well, I, I, I don't know. Meanwhile, the other zookeeper was catching the ram to see if he was bleeding to death from having all his fur yanked out of him. And we discovered, no, he had a lovely little pink patch on his butt that was about the size of a silver dollar, not a drop of blood. And I looked at that and I said, you couldn't have got me a better sample. It's everything he's got all the way to the root ends. <laughs> he said, you wanted one from a sample from one of the ewes also? And I said, that would be nice. So he reaches over to the nearest ewe and goes, yank, here. <laughs> Now, this is a very small portion of what came out of the ram and this uh, from the ewe, and this is typical modern sheep's wool uh, with a staple of six to eight inches, merino-type wool, um, which runs 15 to 30 microns in diameter. This here is 300 microns in diameter. And this stuff here, the undercoat, which keeps him warm, the insulation coat, is about a centimeter long and is less than five microns in diameter. Uh, this is what you would make a nice sweater out of. If you try to spin this, when you start to twist, it shatters for the same reason that all that fur came loose so easily from the ram, which is they have a lot of natural predators in the wild. And if one gloms on and only gets fur, the creature can wrench away and live for another day. So if the wool breaks, or the, actually it's Kemp, breaks if that, that fur breaks, or if it comes loose, then that is to the animal's advantage. Okay, if you try to spin this stuff, it's like trying to spin peach fuzz. It is so fine and so short, you simply can't do it. So I am here to say, no, there's nothing spinnable on the backs of those sheep. Granted, I live in Southern California where they don't have to develop as heavy an undercoat for the winter. And apparently, way high up in the mountains, that undercoat will get quite a bit longer, but it's still just as fine. So the moral of this is that when they first domesticated sheep, they didn't have anything on their backs that was usable for textiles. And the patterns of slaughter show that they were not domesticating them for, for wool. They were domesticating them for meat, which means you kill them at a year to a year and a half of age because then they've reached maximum size uh, for the amount of meat you're going to get. And it's a lot tenderer than if you keep them longer. Um, Whereas if you want them for wool, you want to keep, them, keep harvesting the wool and keep them alive to ripe old age. We see that change in slaughter pattern about 4,000 BC. In other words, by that time, 4,000 years of inbreeding, they had developed sheep with a lot of usable wool. And then, you remember that map with all those arrows? Then everybody wants those sheep as opposed to the earlier sheep because now you've got the original miraculous pitcher. You've got a creature where if you keep it alive, you can get a continuing supply of clothing, but you can also milk it to get a continuing supply of food, rather than killing it, getting one feast and one hide. 
You're listening to excerpts from the lecture, The Mummies of Aramshi, Textiles in Time, presented by Elizabeth Barber. After the main presentation, there was an opportunity for questions from the audience. One person asked about identification of the dyes used on the clothing found on the mummies. We don't know exactly, as I said, the, and this was one of those vagaries where the, <laughs> the archaeologists were saying, we're going to give you samples, and the politicians are saying, don't give them any samples. So we ne- were never able to get sizable samples. We had some tiny little threads, which we were to use for analyzing the, or I should say fibers, which we were to use for analyzing the, the characteristics of the wool. And they have now developed some non-destructive ways of analyzing dyes with such tiny samples. When we got back, they said, wait 10 years and we'll have, you know, the technology's coming. And so the, the, what they were able to tell us, this was done at the Getty Conservation Labs, um, which they did for free because they were just really interested to see this really early stuff. And they said it was commensurate with its being matter, but they didn't have enough to absolutely prove it was matter, but that was the closest that they could get for the red. For the blue, they were very puzzled because they said, well, it seems to be indican, but we keep getting these bromine radicals. Well, indigo murex, purple, is exactly the same chemically as indigo with the addition of bromine. And yet you're 2,000 miles from the, from the ocean any direction you go. <laughs> <laughs> and so it couldn't possibly be murex. And so the, what the suggestion that we finally made is that that basin, which you saw so clearly on that satellite photo at the beginning, um, is a block which had, of a geological block, which had been dropped and sort of pushed down by the Tianshan to the north and the Himalayas to the south. And it, it's a weak block that has gone downwards. And it was a very ancient sea. And so there's probably a lot of bromine in the, the salt. That's all sea salt. So that's probably where the bromine is coming is contamination from the groundwater. Um, and that it possibly is not actually, was not really part of the original dye. So we suspect it's either, in, it's indican, and that it is, but whether it came from Wode to the west or indigo to the south, we don't know because nobody has done the collection of pollens to do a pollen analysis. Thank you. You've been listening to a Maywall podcast. The lecture, The Mummies of Harumchi, Textiles in Time, was presented by Elizabeth Barber on October 12, 2007 as part of the Maywa Textile Symposium held in Vancouver, Canada. The podcast you've just heard consists of excerpts from the lecture. It was first posted in December of 2007. Maywa podcasts can be found on the Maywa website at www.maywa.com. That's www.maiwa.com. I'm Tim McLaughlin. Thank you for listening.